Well, as, as you uh, are probably very aware, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, and just hearing the, the text that Elaine just read to us uh, from the First Thessalonians chapter 3, we're in a, a section of the book here where Paul spends a lot of time talking about really pastoral care. Um, it's been great for me as I've been reading through, studying these texts. There's so much here that, that speaks about the pastor's heart for the church. And I was thinking, you know, how again, it's, 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 it's so beneficial for, for me as I'm studying it. If I was teaching at a pastor's conference through texts like this, this would be a fantastic place to go. Uh, just to encourage uh, other pastors in the faith of what it looks like to care well for the body of Christ. But it, that, that got me thinking about, you know, what, what's, what does this mean for the average church member? You know, when there's a, a big section of scripture that really focuses a lot on pastoral care, um, you know, how does that land on you? How, how should I be thinking about getting up and preaching to you? Uh, the, you know, sort of the, most of you aren't pastors. Um, and so I, I thought, well, maybe I should ask an, an average church member. I happen to know one pretty well. She's lived with me for about 20 years. And I said, uh, you know, what I just said to you, I said, you know, this is, there's so much here for pastors, um, so much about pastoral care. You know, how, how, does it, how does it to sit and to listen to sermons that, that, that focus on uh, that kind of detail? And her, her response was, was nonverbal, but it was something kind of like, So I had to think about this and think, okay, Lord, you know, what's uh, what's a, what's the what's the best way for us to because all word all all of God's word is profitable, right? It's all inspired for us, and even if there's sections that seems sort of kind of geared towards certain ones of us and not all of us, you think about the the idea of pastoral care. Yeah, there's some application there that that's maybe uh, well suited for those with pastoral gifting, but the the reality is that gifts are given for the church, for the benefit of the church. And so even if we're spending a lot of time hearing Paul talk about his pastor's heart, there is benefit for the Thessalonians that he's writing to, and there's benefit for us, um, all of us. And so I titled the message this morning, Pastoral Care for Your Benefit. And uh, as we as we go into this, I, I want you, it's probably going to be uh, less of a sermon uh, and, and maybe a little bit more of, of what we might call just sort of like a fireside chat this morning. Um, uh, I want us to go into it with some some presuppositional ideas uh, as we just kind of work our way through the the text and just kind of talk about some practical application for us here. And, and and these are the presuppositional ideas. First of all, is we are in the process as a church right now of nominating and soon to be affirming elders, right? So as we're going through that process, and we're all involved congregationally in the process of identifying, God, who have you raised up to give pastoral care and oversight to the body? Uh, we can ask the question, what should we be looking for? And I think what we'll see in the text today will, will shed a lot of light on that, on, on the kind of pastoral care, pastoral heart that God has set up and wants to establish in the church for your benefit. The second thing is this, is that, again, it does affect the whole body. Uh, pastoral care is for the church. So, so again, there is application here for all of us. And, and the, the third thing is, 
pass, I, I want you to understand there's a difference between, or, or sometimes at least, a difference between pastoral office and pastoral gifts. Right? So anyone in a pastoral office, an elder in the church, ought to have pastoral gifts, no doubt. But not everyone with pastoral gifts will have a pastoral office. Many people in the church are, are gifted with pastoral gifts, shepherding gifts, ability to really care well for, to shepherd others in the body, men and women alike. Uh, so there is application here for all of us, especially as we consider that each one of us is given the task of caring for one another, of shepherding one another. Right? We look at Ephesians 4 and it says that, that God has given to the church certain gifts and certain offices for the building up of the body so that the body of Christ can do the work of service, the work of ministry. And much of that work of ministry is we're shepherding one another. We're, we're building up and caring for one another so that we all attain maturity right, in Christ. So even though, uh, yes, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on pastoral care, uh, keep in mind that, that each of you, uh, in, in whatever sphere God gives you, has opportunity to care well, pastorally even, for one another. Okay? All right. Well, let me pray. And let's, let's walk through this text and see what God has to say to us about how pastors can care well for the church. Father, thank You for Your Word and that it is inspired by You, Lord. This is Your Word. So that when we come to it, we're not just reading the words of Paul or Peter or any of the other authors who have penned our New Testament or Old Testament books, Lord. But Lord, we're hearing You speak through them to the church. That when we come under this Word, it's, it's, there's authority to it. There's authority to it unlike anything else that we hear because it, its source is ultimate authority. You are ultimate authority. You're the Creator. You're the One who made us and this world. You're the One who has designed our lives, Lord, to, to, to function in such a way that, that, Lord, there is glory given to You and there's flourishing among humanity. When we're aligned with You, Father, when we're guided by what You have to say, we find ourselves in the place of our, our ultimate benefit. So Father, we humbly recognize that this morning. We also recognize that we come to sit under the Word oftentimes, Lord, with, with other kinds of information that has shaped us, that has even established the way that, that we live our lives. And many of those things, Lord, need to be corrected. We need to be convicted of our our lack of a desire for You and our awareness that, Lord, that You alone are worthy of our full affection and obedience. So, Lord, use this text to, to bring us in alignment with You. And also, Lord, use this text to encourage and to shape the body, specifically Edgewater Baptist Church, as we gather together as a family. Lord, let this make us better, more Christ-like, for the benefit of each of our brothers and sisters in this body. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to break this down into five, uh, five ways in which pastors and pastoral gifting is of benefit to the church. And the first one is this. 
Pastor elders care well for the church by being willing to stand alone for the sake of the church. Look again at the text. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the Gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Just by way of reminder what's happening here, you recall that, that Paul and Silas had gone into Thessalonica. They had preached the Gospel. A church had been planted there. And, and immediately there was a, a tremendous amount of upheaval in the city, uh, specifically aimed at them. And it caused the church to send Paul away. They said, you guys got to get out of here. Things are getting hot. Uh, and, and they did. And, and persecution began to come a, a, along to the church there. And, and so Paul and Silas uh, move out. And Timothy ends up joining them. And they're hearing now, sometime later, about the increase of affliction and persecution that's happening in Thessalonica, and they're concerned about it. Their, their biggest concern was, did, did this, this little bud of faith that God brought about here in this community in Thessalonica, has it been snuffed out? They hadn't had a lot of time to disciple and to see the church established, and, and their great their fear was that, that this, this opposition may have just completely uh, discourage everybody to the point of walking away, right? Uh, and so in that concern, here Paul is, is desiring to send Timothy back to find out, right? You need to go back and find out and, and, and encourage and establish this church more and more. And what he's saying here is, is pretty significant, right? Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, our, our love for you and our, and our desire for your growth was so strong, we couldn't bear it anymore. We were willing to be left behind in Athens, he says. Which is interesting because when he says we, and you read it in context, you realize that he's really saying me. Right? Because if we read in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 18, the events surrounding this period of time, we know here's Paul, he's got Silas, and he's got Timothy. They're about to head into Athens here. And he sends Timothy back, and he ends up sending Silas off someplace else. So what he's really saying is, I knew that it was best for me to go into Athens and to stay here alone for the sake of finding out and making sure that you're okay. Now the word that he uses here when he talks about being left behind in the Greek is a, is a word that actually is much stronger than what it sounds like here in English. And what he's saying there is, he says, I knew that it was best that I be abandoned. Uh, that I be deserted. Which gives you a little bit of a sense of what he's sort of expecting heading into Athens. Remember that as they've been traveling along in this missionary journey, pretty much everywhere they go, they, they, they get opposition. They, they run into trouble. They get beat up. They get persecuted. They get kicked out, right? And so as they've been traveling through the, the, the regions of, of the, the sort of Greco-Roman world here, they're heading into one of the, the big cities, Athens, knowing that what's awaiting them in Athens is probably, probably, uh, the opportunity for the most severe persecution they've seen yet. Because Athens is the, is the seat of philosophical thought, right? He's about to step into, he knows, he's about to step into the Areopagus where you've got the, the, the greatest thinkers of the day and the greatest philosophies and therefore the, the greatest false religions and idolatry of the day all gathering together regularly to hear one another out. And if he goes into this situation and he basically says, which he does to them, you're all worshiping a false god. 
You don't know the real God. Here is the real God. Odds are, based on past experience, this is not going to go well for Paul. And yet, even though he knows that and to send Timothy, to send off Silas, and to do this alone is going to be very difficult for me, his heart is to say, the church is so much more important to me than my own safety, my own comfort, my own well-being. I'm willing to do that if it means your benefit, church. And I love that heart. I love that heart. It, it reminds me of, of when, when I first went into ministry and began my formal theological training. Excuse me for a minute. One of my professors said something to me that I'll never forget. And I think I've shared this with you before. But he said, you know, when you go into pastoral ministry, and you graduate from seminary, there's, there's, there's one thing that you will get, but another thing that you should get. What you will get is you'll get a piece of paper that says you've got your MDiv or your, your, your theological degree. And you can hang that on the wall in your office, and that's all fine and good. What you should get is a t-shirt that has a big target on the front of it. He said, and you need to be prepared for that as you step into ministry, knowing that that's one of the, 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 the signature qualities of a man who's been called out by God to really shepherd and lead a congregation. You need to be prepared to know that oftentimes you're going to stand alone and you're the one who's going to get hit. And you need to be willing to take that hit for the benefit of the body. That's the way I look at Paul here. It's like he's pulling out from his suitcase his Target t-shirt and he's putting it on and saying, all right, I'm going to go into this and I'm going to stand alone because I know it's best for you that I send my support system to you. That, that's, a, that's a quality that God often uses for the benefit of the body. Tremendously. When, when, when there are men and women who are willing to stand alone to get hit for the sake of the church. Have you ever heard the story of Charles Simeon? Charles Simeon <clears throat> excuse me, was a, was a pastor in England. He lived in 1759 to 1836, so kind of the, the uh, 18th, 19th century. And he has an interesting story as he gets called into to ministry. He, he goes to seminary. He actually wasn't even much of a... He would say he got saved there. Um, but he, he left seminary with such a, such a passion for the gospel that his desire was to go and to preach the gospel and build up the church. And so at age 23, he is appointed vicar, which is another word for pastor, of Holy Trinity Church. And the, and the thing about that appointment was that the church there did not want him. They wanted somebody else. And they made it very clear to him that you're not the guy we wanted. We really wanted somebody else. And, and, and so that coupled with the fact that as he went into the church and began to preach the gospel, and that's what he faithfully did. He was preaching the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ with such clarity and force, it just began to alienate him more from the congregation. They did not want to hear it. And it was interesting in the churches back then, um, and, and if you've ever been to maybe New England, you might, you might still see some traces of this in older churches, but in the, the pews uh, had doors on the ends of the aisles. Ever seen a church like that? Uh, so basically, you could rent a pew. Right? You'd have sort of your own little private pew for your family, and, and you had a key to that pew. You could lock the door. This is like Victoria's Dream Church. I see you nodding your head. Like, this is... Yeah. <clears throat> 
And so what happened was as, as he began to come in and, and, and to preach the gospel, the people in the churches just started locking all of the pew doors and not showing up to church. Not only that they wouldn't come, but nobody else could come either because there was no place to sit. And so Simeon brings some seating into the aisles. So people would at least be able to come in and have some place to sit, but the church wardens on Sunday mornings would take it all out. Forcing people, if they wanted to come, they'd have to stand the whole time. You can imagine the, the kind of... Uh, <laughs> what would that do to a, a, a 23-year-old pastor, right? He's thinking, you know, I, I just my whole desire was to come here and to build the church up, to preach the Word of God, to give them the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and, and there's nothing that they want of it. They're doing anything and everything that they can to, to stop this ministry from happening. You'd think that he'd want to quit. And he did. In fact, he wrote this. He said, When I was an object of much contempt and derision in the university, I strolled forth one day, buffeted and afflicted, with my little testament in my hand, his Bible in his hand. And he says, And the first text that caught my eye was this. It's from the Gospels. It was from the crucifixion scene. And it says, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear Jesus' cross. And that invigorated him to, know, to say, you know what? Jesus stood alone for the benefit of His people. I need to stand alone for the benefit of the church and keep on going. And He did. And by standing alone, grounded in His faith, and committed to the good of the church, things began to change. And I'll come back to that because it'll be relevant how it began to change in my next point. But it's that, that same idea of when we're, when we're considering what does pastoral care look like? Sometimes pastoral care means standing alone when nobody else cares or wants you or outsiders are attacking and you're willing to stand up and say, here, the target's on me. Because the, the, the concern is the church needs the gospel the church needs to grow and 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 a, and a good shepherd is one who's willing to stand up in front and say i'll take the blows in order to protect the word of god and the gospel of jesus christ from can, so it can, can continue to shape god's people there's a modern example of that 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 um you're probably more familiar with and that that would be the example of, of martin luther king jr i was reading something about him this week you, you recall in 1963 in Birmingham, there was the the the, the lunch counter sit-ins, um, where you know you have these diners in in Birmingham that in restaurants that that had white sections and black sections, or maybe just whites only. And so some of the students in the area, as part of the, the civil rights protests, were were going and they were just sitting at those counters, and they knew what was going to happen. They were going to get arrested, and they did. And they got arrested at such a rate that, that the jails began to fill up. There was over 500 of these civil rights pro protesters who had been imprisoned. And the problem was that the movement was running out of money in order to bail them out. And so all the, all the, the leaders of the, the movement, many of the, the pastors and leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr., uh, got into a room together and they began to consider, what are we going to do about this? You know, we, we've been, we've been saying we want to, we want them to protest. We want the visibility here, but we'll continue to bail them out. What if we can't bail them out anymore? And everybody kind of looked at Martin Luther King Jr. and said, look, you're, our, you're the best fundraiser. You've got to get out there and keep raising funds so we can, we can do this. And, 
And his conviction, he says, he says, I felt very much like I was all alone in the room. His conviction was, you know what? No, I need to go and I need to get arrested. If I'm asking them to do this, I need to do this. And everybody said, don't do that. If you're in jail, you can't fundraise. He said, no, but if I'm not with the people, then I'm not being the shepherd and the leader that I've said I am. And I'm not willing to suffer with them like Christ has suffered with us. And so he puts on his work clothes and he walks down there and gets arrested and put into prison to identify with and to lead the people. That's Again, that's the example. So as we consider pastoral care, as we consider what it means to, to be willing to stand alone, to sometimes to do things for the sake of the church, knowing that it's very sacrificial on your part, that's the heart of Paul. And it's the heart of Jesus for what it means to be a good shepherd. That's point number one. The second one is this. It's equipping and sending out others for the sake of the church. And it's the same verses. You see, not only was Paul willing to stand alone, but he says again, therefore when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the Gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. One thing that Paul understood well was that duplication or multiplication of ministry skills was necessary for the good of the church. Paul couldn't do it all. Paul knew that he had a call to continue on and to go into Athens and to preach the Gospel. How will we care well for the growing body of Christ if it's just on me? And so Paul began to develop others like Silas and like Timothy and was willing then, again sacrificially so, to say, I'll send you out for the benefit of others. I mentioned Charles Simeon. And I said that his continuing to stand and to preach ultimately had great benefit for the church. Listen to what happened. As he stood alone and preached to a greatly empty room, the Lord honored that. And slowly the pews began to open up and to fill. Not primarily with the people from the community who had rented those seats, but primarily with students. And then Simeon did something that was very unusual for the time. He began then to do evening services. He did Sunday nights and Friday nights. He called these conversation parties. And he began to invest in, not just preaching the Gospel, but building up and equipping others for ministry, many of these young students for ministry. And it's said that by the end of his life, as many as one-third of all of the Anglican ministers in England had sat under Simeon's tutelage in those conversation parties. So here's a man who, again, is, is saying, you know what, not only is it, is it, is it beneficial for the church for me to, uh, to preach the Gospel and to build them up, but also to equip and send out others to multiply this ministry. And the effect of that was incredible. Of course, we see that example in Jesus too, right? He calls the twelve to Himself and He equips them and He sends them out for ministry. And from twelve, we saw the world get turned upside down. So as we think about pastoral care, that's one of the important elements. Is Do we see people who are willing to invest in others such that they are able to equip and send out 
for the benefit of the church that more and more shepherds are available for the congregation. What does that mean for the congregation? Well, I said it's a benefit, but but it also means this. It also means that the congregation has to see that benefit and be willing to value the fact that others are being sent out and it may not be Paul who comes and knocks on their door. It may not always be the pastor who gets to come and do that work of ministry. We have to be willing as as the body of Christ to, to rejoice in the fact that if the pastor isn't the one who always comes, but somebody else is equipped and sent and able to come, that's evidence of health and fruit in the body. Right? If, if we were, if we were uh, limited to Paul being the only one who was able to, function, to, to uh, carry out that function, or if we're limited in our local churches to the pastor being the only one who's limited to carry out that function, as much as we think it would be great if the pastor is the one who shows up, the reality is this, the pastor is not going to show up because he's going to be so busy with somebody else. Right? So it's a, it's a blessing for the body when pastoral care includes those who are willing to train up and equip and to send out others for the sake of ministry. And look at what Paul says here about Timothy. Something very significant. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker. God's co-worker. That's a significant statement. You almost kind of step back and be like, man, how can you say that, right? He's, he's your co-worker. He's God's co-worker. Yeah, right? Because as, as, as we're equipped and sent and pastorally gifted, we are called into the ministry of the gospel, not as representatives of the person who sent us, but ultimately as representatives of the one who called us and saved us, and equipped us, and sent us. Jesus Himself. So it's a blessing for the body. Pastoral care is exhibited. And as we're looking for elders in our own congregation, know that it's good for all of us when we can, we can identify and affirm those who are good and capable at equipping and building up others to multiply the work of pastoral care in the church. That's number two. Number three, this is where I think the application starts to get much more uh, down to earth for all of us. Encouraging the church in trials through exhortation. Pastors care well for the church by encouraging the church (coughs) in trials through exhortation. Look again at verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the Gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. So he's saying here that as we sent Timothy, that the, the task of Timothy was to encourage you in these trials that you're experiencing, to, to exhort you in this affliction. What does it mean? This is really, I think, really important. What does it mean to be encouraged in the midst of trials? The word that's used here for exhort is parakaleo in the Greek. It's, it's, the, it's, it's also paraklesis. Maybe you've heard that. You, you hear it oftentimes in, in, uh, in conjunction with the description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is our comforter, right? The Spirit comforts the body. That's the word paraklesis. So parakaleo here is used here as, the, as this word exhort. It can also be translated as comfort. And so I want to ask this question, what does it mean to be comforted? Think about it. When you're experiencing a trial and you want comfort, 
Somebody says, I want to come and bring comfort to you. What, what sort of comfort do you envision? And you know what I think we oftentimes envision? We envision sort of like the warm blanket, right? I just want somebody to give me a hug. I just want somebody to come around me and just kind of like kiss my forehead and, and, and just say, they're there, you know? Maybe I can't explain what's going on. Maybe I, I don't know how to speak into this. I'm just, but, but here's just, oh, I just want to wrap you up and give you a hug. And listen, that's, a, that's good. And in fact, when, when uh, Jorge was teaching from the, the end of chapter 2 last week, there's kind of, you kind of get that idea from Paul when he talks about his exceeding love for the body. Right? When he says here at the beginning of chapter 3, we just couldn't stand it anymore. We just had to send Timothy. There's a sense in which you, you, you get this idea that they want to come and just sort of give him a hug. However, that's not really the ultimate meaning of the word exhort, of the word parakaleo. Here's what it means. All right? I'm going to actually put something up on the, on the screen here. <coughs> Excuse me. Have anybody heard of the, the bio-tapestry? Bio-tapestry is just really cool. Uh, it's, it, there's, there's a couple copies of it. I think the original is in France. Basically, it depicts the invasion of England by William the Conqueror in 1066. And so there's this tapestry that actually, if, if you were to lay it out, it's about 55 centimeters in height. I don't know what that is. Uh, but it, 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 it's like, it, it's, it's over 700 meters long. It would stretch all the way around this room. And what it does is it tells the story of the Battle of Hastings and the invasion of England in 1066. All right? And the reason why it was, it was made as a tapestry is because most people couldn't read back then. So if you're coming back from the conquest of war and you want to share sort of a propaganda way, like, you know, here's what happened. You know, they, they made this big tapestry so people could almost watch it like a cartoon as it unfolds. And in the middle of this tapestry, you get the scene that I just put behind you on the screen. This is Bishop Odo. Right in the middle there, right? The guy with kind of the checkery clothes. Bishop Odo was actually Williams, the conqueror's brother. And what you're seeing here is a picture of him prodding the soldiers in front of him. You see he's got this big club in his hand. So the idea is he's kind of like going, keep going, go, go, go. And the reason he's doing that is because in this scene of the, of the, of the battle, they think William has been killed. And so they're, they're beginning to, to falter. They're beginning to fail. They, they kind of want to quit. They want to run. They want to retreat. And so Bishop Odo grabs the club and he starts encouraging them to keep going. And the thing that's interesting about this is that there's, there's Latin inscriptions above it. And it's not, it doesn't fully fit on this screen. But here's what it says in the Latin inscription. It says, this is Bishop Odo comforting his troops. Comforting his troops. That's not a warm blanket. That's a club. All right? And that gives me some insight into the meaning of the word parakaleo. That's translated exhort in our passage. The, the, the English, or excuse me, the English word comfort comes from, again, the Latin confortis, means with strength. With strength. And exhort and encourage the other English words that are a good translation of, of parakaleo. I mean, quite literally, to put courage into somebody. To put strength into somebody. The, the root word is to call alongside or to help. And so it's what, what you do when, when you're called to, to stand alongside and to help somebody who's going through difficulty and trial and needs comfort. The idea is that you're coming alongside to put courage into them. 
to say, don't give up. Keep going, right? It may include a hug, but it, it, but it has to include a club, right? This sort of idea of like, look, the battle's going to be won. King's not dead. Keep going, keep going, keep fighting. We're going to win this thing. It's all going to come out right in the end. It's a beautiful picture here in this tapestry. And so that's kind of the idea that Paul's getting at here. I sent Timothy to you, not just to put his arm around you, but to encourage you, keep going. Keep going. Remember the context of everything that he said to the church so far. We know that God has chosen you. We know that He has saved and sanctified you. Look at the fruit that's being born in your lives. This is only the fruit that the Spirit could produce. You couldn't do this on your own. God is clearly at work in saving and establishing His people. Keep going. Keep going. I know there's persecution. I know there's suffering and affliction. Keep going. It reminds me of what was often said this week with the death of Billy Graham. I don't know if you listened to a lot of the quotes that were put out on the news or on the internet, but one of the quotes with Billy Graham was, I've read the end of the book. I've read the last page of the Bible. I know what it says. It's all going to turn out okay. That's the idea. Keep going. Keep going. And what's the content of that exhortation? That's, the, that's sort of the, the way it came about, right? Keep going. What's the content of the exhortation? Look again at verses 4 and 5. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it comes to pass, just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I was worried that this was going to be in vain, but remember what we told you. It was going to happen. Suffering was part of the deal. It's going to happen. Affliction is part of the Christian life. We told you. My daughter and I were, were flying back from Denver this week. And um, we get on the plane, and the pilot comes on, the speaker, before we've even taken off. We're still sitting on the tarmac. And she says, like pilots do, uh, folks, there's, there's going to be a significant amount of bumpiness in the air this afternoon. Pretty much everywhere across the country, we're, we're finding bumps. We know this is going to happen, much to the chagrin of my daughter. The, the, she says, you know, so we've instructed the flight attendants they're not going to be serving any drinks. We're like, oh, man. Right? Everybody has to stay seated. The, light, the, seatbelt, the seatbelt sign is not going to go off. But, but here's why. We're going to have bumps. Right, and sure enough, we take off, and what happens? We get up in the air, and right, we're we're feeling it. Now, could you imagine that if she had not come on the speaker and given us that warning, but rather we're flying in the air, and all of a sudden you get that big jolt, and and all of a sudden then she comes on the speaker, and she's like, "Oh, what? Whoa, we weren't expecting that, right? We did not see that. Whoa, there it goes again. What's going to happen to the people in the plane?" We're all going to start panicking, right? Like, what? what why, what's happening? You didn't see that coming? What's, what's next, right? But the fact that she had come on and said, no, we know this is going to happen. We know this is going to come. And when it did come, we are all like, okay, we, we expected it, right? And that's kind of the idea here that Paul's getting at. Look, we told you this was going to happen. This is part of the Christian life. Remember a few weeks ago in, in the sermon, we talked about why does suffering for the Christian happen? It's, be, it's, it's that, that picture of the river and the, and the whole flow of, of, of the world is sort of running downstream by the effects of sin. And in Christ, we're, we're turned around. That's what repentance means. And we're swimming against the current. 
right? What's going to happen? You're going to get bumps. Rocks are going to come. Debris is going to hit you, right? But, but we know that, and we know that the reason for that is because it's evidence again that God is at work in our lives. God has turned us against the flow of the world, and He's leading us back towards holiness and righteousness in Christ. There's going to be bumps. There's going to be friction. It's going to be rub. So the encouragement of keep going is coupled with you know this is going to happen. And that constant reminder of the Gospel's work at us, which will produce affliction, is the sustaining verbiage that allows the church to endure. So good pastoral care isn't just a warm blanket. Sometimes it's a club that kindly reminds us, keep going. Keep going. That's an excellent point of pastoral care in the church. Fourthly, this. Pastors care well for the church by taking joy in the spiritual health and growth of the church. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? You want to know how to, how to identify somebody who's pastorally gifted and should be affirmed in those gifts for care in the body? They're the people who rejoice at the health of the church. They're the people who rejoice in your endurance and your persistence and your growth. That's what Paul's saying here. Like we, what, what, what thanks could we give to God? We, we, are, we, are, we live because we know you're okay. Right? And we talked about it last week at the end of chapter 2 when Paul says, you are our crown of joy. And we, we talked about that even a couple weeks earlier. I mentioned it in one of the sermons, sort of saying that the next best thing to, to when you get to heaven and seeing the Lord face to face and, and hearing that well done, good and faithful servant, the next great joy of heaven, I believe, is when you're going to see others that you've had an impact on. To be able to say, this, you, you're my crown of joy. I had a great conversation with Joy Rosado earlier this week. Uh, Joy is, is going through elder training here at the church. It's a year-long program that, that, uh, that I've been leading him through, uh, just equipping him for the, the future role of, 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 by God's grace, being an elder in the church. And, and he said that, that message a couple weeks ago, when you said that, he said, that's really impacted me. If you know Joey, this isn't going to surprise you at all, but he said, I was thinking about getting a tattoo on my hand that says, that says you are my crown of joy. And he said, I want it on my hand because I want it to be visible. If, if the Lord were to establish me and call me into the position of being an elder in the church, I want to be able to look at that regularly and be reminded that that's, that's a motivation for me to care well for the body, to care well for my own personal holiness, knowing that, that my, my walk with the Lord has an effect then on those that I, I care for. And I thought, man, that's, that's really cool. I'm not going to do that, Joy. I'm not going to get a tattoo with you, but I love, I love the idea, Right? Because there, there is there's something so um, there's something so beautiful 
about, about those in the body who, who take exceeding joy in the health and the growth of the church. And that's a, that's a good evidence of pastoral gifting and pastoral care. Talked about Billy Graham a little bit earlier. One of the things that I saw this week on the internet, uh, I don't know what newspaper it came from, but it was a, a cartoon um, that somebody uh, had drawn up, and it, it was it was this. Right, here's the scene: right? Billy Graham showing up at the the gates of heaven this week. I don't know if that's supposed to be Peter. I don't know what the theology behind this drawing is, but here's here's the gatekeeper, right? And he says, "Billy Graham." Millions of people here want to thank you. I love that picture. And I, 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 it makes me tear up when I think about that. Like the joy of, of, of knowing that, that there, are, there are others in the body whose growth is, is, the, is the evidence of God's grace through the life of your gifting and your exercising of the gifts to care well to instruct and to lead and to disciple and to care for and to encourage God's people. And, and I, I think this probably, something like this must have happened for Billy Graham this week, right? Could you imagine? There are millions of people who are in heaven who could say, I heard the gospel from you, Billy. What a beautiful testimony. So as we, as we consider, again, what pastoral care is for the church, we, we'd see obvious benefit to the body here, right? When those who are, who, are, who, are, who are bringing the gospel to bear on the life of the church, millions of people, dozens of people benefiting. And, and, and to be able to say, yes, Lord, establish over us, give us gifts of pastoral care that would have that kind of effect and fruit in the body. That's a beautiful thing to pray for and to look for, right? Pastors care well for the church by taking joy in their spiritual health and growth. And then finally this. Pastor elders care well for the church by praying earnestly for you and supplying what is lacking in your faith. Look at verse 9 and 10. Excuse me again. He says in verse 9, if I can find it, I'll start in verse 8. For we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. We've talked about this quite a bit. I won't go back into the detail of it, but the, the, a pastor's duty as modeled by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 and following, is certainly to give himself to the Word and prayer. Right? That's, 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 that's a primary function of, of eldering, given to the Word and to prayer. To be, to be regularly seeking God's favor uh, and presence for His people, guided by what God says in His Word, teaching that to the congregation. This is something Paul's focused on quite a bit already in his letter to the Thessalonians. But I want you to notice something important here. Just to focus on this one thing. He says also to supply what is lacking in your faith. We're praying earnestly for you. We want to see you so that we can supply what is lacking in your faith. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say to supply what's lacking in your doctrine. He doesn't say to supply what's lacking in your knowledge. Now why is that? Well, 
I think the reason for that is those are foundational, very important things, our doctrine and our knowledge. But, but I think that here, those things are assumed. In other words, if you've read 1 Thessalonians up to this point, we know that he's, he's assured that they already know the content of the gospel. In fact, seven times he says something to the effect of, you know this. You know this. I don't have to remind you of this. You already heard this. You know this. He says that seven times about their understanding of the content of the Gospel and of His ministry with them. Here's what they need though. They need a reminder, not just the content of the Gospel, but the practical application of it. In other words, yeah, you know the Gospel. You know the Word. But here's the thing. You need to be constantly reminded, how does that affect your life? How do you apply this to what you're actually going through? And this is the ongoing, necessary, equipping work of pastoral care. It's, it's, it's teaching the church how to take the content that they, that, that they know and be able to actually practically apply it on a daily basis to the situations that they're going through. Yes, you know that Christ has died for your sins and that by faith in Him, you, your sins have been forgiven. You've been called a son and a daughter. right? You have eternal hope of heaven. You're a part of His body. You're being sanctified. He's going he's to finish in you what He began. You know that. But tomorrow, you're going to run into a problem in your marriage where there's conflict that you can't seem to get over and you need to be reminded, how does the Gospel speak to that so that I can apply it and overcome this? Tomorrow you're going to be faced with affliction. Tomorrow you're going to be faced with a persistent sin that may be coming back and continually knocking out your feet from under you and causing you to be discouraged. You may face anxiety. You may face physical ailment. And, and things are going to come along that are going to cause you to despair. And you have to have somebody who can come along and say, look, you know this. Let me help you apply it. And that's what good pastoral care is about. As we think about how do we appoint elders for the body, we should be thinking, look, look for those who are, who are skilled at not just knowing the gospel, but applying it and helping others to do the same. We want to supply what's lacking, not in your knowledge, but in your faith. That's a tremendously important part of good pastoral care for the body. Let me close with this. Why does this matter? Why does all this matter? What's the point of all this? What's the point of our gathering together? What's the point of our faith? It's simply this. We're the people of Jesus. Jesus is what it's all about. The, the whole point of, of growth and maturity in the church is that we attain that maturity and completeness in Christ. And when you look at these things on the board, what do you see? You see the example of Jesus. Jesus was willing to stand alone for the sake and the good of the church. He endured the cross all by Himself. All of our sins placed on Him. He had the biggest target you could ever have placed on His, his gut, His chest. But He knew that for the sake of all of us, His death 
his sacrifice was necessary. And then he not only shepherded us by his life and death, but he called others to himself and he equipped them and sent them out for ministry. Go make disciples, teaching them all that I've taught you, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you to the end of the age. Go out. Jesus equipped and sent for ministry. Jesus encourages the church through trials and exhortation by the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives. The great paraclesis is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' Spirit in us, continually comforting us and encouraging us. Keep going. Keep going. I've won. The victory is mine. Endure till the end and you'll be saved. It's Jesus who takes great joy in the spiritual health and growth of the church. It's Jesus who prays regularly for us and supplies what is lacking in our faith, again, by the presence of His Holy Spirit. We have in Jesus an advocate before the Father who is constantly making intercession for us. And so when we think about pastoral care, that's that's the biggest thing we're thinking about is what does it look like to model, to follow the example and to bless the body with the ministry of Jesus. And He's gifted us in the church, some of us in very specific pastoral giftings, and all of us with the call to shepherd one another. With this in mind, that Jesus Christ would be seen and formed and treasured and worshipped by His people. So let's pray for that. Let's pray that God would produce in us not just leaders who can model this well and benefit all of us. But let's pray as well that God would in each of us shape us with this kind of ministry so that we point one another well to the chief shepherd who is Jesus. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You love Your church. We hear Paul say, I couldn't stand it anymore. I just, I just wanted to be with You. And we just get a glimpse of the kind of love that You have for Your people. Jesus talked about the the love of a father for His children. He says, how much more does Your heavenly Father love You? And Lord, You've given to us Your love through Your Son and all these ways that He has shepherded us pastorally and cared for us and redeemed us And Father, by Your grace, You've given to the church then this gift, pastoral care. And it's for our benefit. And we need it, Lord, because we need Jesus daily. So I do pray, Lord, that You would increase in us at Edgewater this kind of pastoral heart for one another. Help us to love one another well. Help us to invest in one another so that we are forming Christ in us. That You're doing that. And Lord, we do pray that as we excuse me, as we nominate and we affirm elders, Father, would You bless this body with elders who, 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 who exemplify these things so well that we would be strengthened and, and, and that we would be encouraged to endure and to grow for Your glory. Lord, we know that apart from You, we can do nothing. But Lord, by Your grace and Your presence, Father, as Ed reminded us earlier, nothing's impossible, Lord, and You can build and establish an incredibly strong and healthy church 
even in the midst of a dark place like this. So we depend on you for that, for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.